I'm reading from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter, daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, 
who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. We pray in his most beloved name, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all his people said, Amen. I've been coming to this place for the better part of 45 years. And in the past 45 years, since I crossed the threshold of those doors, I've had spiritual fathers. Cedric Potter, John Ginyard, Jack Dawson, Ashley Kimber, James Whitelaw. I distinctly remember shortly after I was married, sitting at Jack Dawson's dining room table on Molson Street. And he was instructing me and imparting some of his wisdom about the importance of spending time with your children. I have conversations with people from all walks of life and they'll often ask me, what is the hardest thing you have ever accomplished or done? And I can tell you without hesitation this morning that it's not professional. It's not what I've done behind a desk or the documents that I've signed. It's not academic with regards to the schooling or the teaching, it's not even with regards to business. All of those things were difficult, but the single most challenging undertaking that I've had in my life is being a parent, being a father to my three sons. What I value the most is being a husband and being a father. The hard part about this is that as we undertake the role of parenting, be it mother or father, is that we have no training. We have no past experience. And you often get blamed for a lot of stuff, some of it justifiable, and with regards to mothers especially who are incredibly patient and long-suffering, they even get blamed for stuff that is not their fault at all. That's absolutely out of their control. The hardest undertaking that I've had and continue to have is to be a father. And I can trust my wife to tell me the truth. And I often ask her, what can I do better? Was I wrong? And every so often she'll tell me, well, you need to apologize to one of your boys. You need to make things right. Which brings us to Naomi this morning. Naomi, with regards to... is probably an unlikely candidate. Because in verse 5 you'll see that 
she comes home, she goes back to Bethlehem without a husband, without children, without grandchildren. So what can she possibly teach us about motherhood or about being a parent this morning? And I submit to you that she can teach us a lot. We can see God working in her life and transforming. And I want you to listen to this, and I'm going to repeat it on numerous occasions. God taking abject failure and transforming it to spectacular success. Failure to success. Hopelessness to promise. Naomi left her hometown full. They were landowners. She had a husband. She had children. A life filled with promise. Albeit they left Bethlehem because of famine. And she comes back and out of her own avowal, she comes back empty, destitute, desolate, desperate. Naomi was full. She was empty. And at the very end, we will see that she was overflowing. You will notice that the word, I know she's having a hard time following where I'm going, but either way, be patient. Thank you, dear. Thank you for your help. You will notice Bethlehem mentioned five times in this one chapter. It's mentioned two times at the very beginning, and it's mentioned three times at the very end of the chapter. Now, Bethlehem may ring a bell. It has incredible meaning for a believer. It is the birthplace of Jesus. Geographically, it's the place where Jesus is born. It has a historical meaning for believers. The word Bethlehem means house of bread, house of food. So we have Elimelech and his wife and two sons leave the house of food and the house of bread to go to Moab. I'm going to make the case this morning that that was a poor decision. They should never have left Bethlehem the house of bread, and the house of food. And we see at the end of the chapter that one of the turning points is when they come back to where? Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Scripture does not mention one single geographical location five times without a reason. Tell yourself there's a purpose and a reason for it to be mentioned five times in chapter 1. But what is also interesting, as we look at the bookend, the last verse of chapter 1, is the time that they come back. They come back during the barley season. It's the first harvest. And barley in Scripture is significant of food 
of food for the poor. And it is the first harvest around springtime. Bethlehem, 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 Bethlehem. Sometimes we make wrong decisions. Sometimes we make the wrong turn. And sometimes we're headed in the wrong place. The question to you this morning is, have you ever made any bad decisions? Have you ever gone to any bad places? But more importantly, even when we make bad decisions and we go to bad places, what can God do in transforming poor decisions into something for His honor and glory? This is what makes our God separate and distinct. He is able to take terrible situations and transform them so that the end brings honor and glory to Him. Where are you this morning? Are you in a bad place as a result of bad decisions? And are you trusting God to take you from that place and to make something good out of something bad. And this is Naomi's, it may not even have been her decision. She may just very well have been following her husband's lead. But they were going in the wrong place. And what happens when they were in Moab? Her sons married two women with a different set of values that they had as a family or from where they were coming from. And during their 10 years there, she loses her husband and her two sons. She's left with two daughters-in-law from Moab. Two more mouths to feed. Two more mouths to support. Two more foreigners to take care of. And the question is, how is God going to take a desperate and hopeless situation and transform it and convert it for His honor and glory. You know the answer to that if you're familiar with this story, but this is exactly what He does, what He's done, and what He can do for you. In the ancient world, it was a terrible thing to be a widow, and it was a terrible thing to be in a foreign land. You would always be viewed as the outsider, you would have very few prospects. You no longer had a protector because even though if your protector did not actively fight for you, he was a dissuasive force for people to take advantage of you. Human nature being to seeking out those who are weak and preying upon them. No prospects no protector, no provider, no one to look after you and to sustain you. My friends, brothers and sisters, Naomi is a highly unlikely candidate for a Mother's Day message. So how does this become a happy Mother's Day message? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Because... The God we know 
transcends biology. He transcends ethnicity. He transcends nationality. We are going to see here how God uses a Gentile, a woman at that, from a foreign country, where Naomi's family should not have been in the first place, and God takes that situation and makes it miraculous. God is, goes beyond ethnicity, nationality, and biology. And being a mother, being a parent, is much more than biology. Many of you, as I've been the beneficiary, or I've benefited from spiritual fathers, many of you have benefited from the nourishment, the fostering, being cherished by a spiritual mother, either men or women. Most of you can look back and look for a woman in your life who has fed you, who has fostered you, who has cared for you, who has loved you, who has looked after you. And it's not necessarily a, bio a biological link. It's much bigger and much wider than that. But here we are in verse 5. So that the woman was left without the, her two sons and her husband. You will notice in this passage, and I want to bring your attention to it, that every time there's a reference to Orpah and to Ruth, the narrator or the writer refers to them in a certain way, and when Naomi is addressing them, she refers to them in another way. You may or may not have noticed that the narrator refers to them as the daughters-in-law. It's in blue or beige or whatever color was picked, but everywhere in chapter 1, it's daughters-in-law when it's the writer. How does Naomi address them? Every time she speaks to them, you will notice, she addresses them as daughter. They're not her biological daughters, but the bond that she has with them, the manner in which she sees them, she sees them as her daughters. Even though they're from a foreign country, even though they're Gentiles, even though they're pagan, she addresses them as daughter. What does that tell us about Naomi? Naomi, notwithstanding her complaints, is a noble woman. Naomi is a woman of noble character. And we're going to see how these two daughters respond to her. You'll see the manner in which they reciprocate their devotion, their love, and their care to a woman who is their mother-in-law. And she had no reason to be nice to them anymore. Her sons were dead. They hadn't given her any grandchildren. They were foreigners and two more people to take care of. She really had no reason from a, on a human level 
or a financial level or on a social level to be caring for them, especially when she makes the decision to go back home. Can you imagine heading back home to Bethlehem, and we're going to see that later on, and bringing in tow two women from Moab, two widows from Moab. I'll draw your attention to verse 6, and I'll read it for you. Then she, being Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to, here's a key word, to return, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So what happens? The famine is over back in the house of food and the house of bread. She decides to return and to go back home. And where does she hear the good news? She's in the fields. And what is she doing in the fields? She's probably working. Does this ring a bell with another story? What story comes to mind in Scripture in the New Testament? It's the parable of the prodigal son. At a certain moment in time, the prodigal son, when he's destitute and he's lost everything and he's hired himself out and he's eating whatever he can to sustain himself, he remembers about his father's house, how the servants even ate better. He's in the fields and he hears. And what happens to Naomi here? She hears in the fields and she's probably working. She is working. She's not probably working. She is. She says that back home, things are better. Things are good. This is a turning point. You'll notice the word return used repeatedly, but at this moment in time, it's a pivotal moment. It's a turning point. My question to you, question number two, is what about you? What about you? Are you ready today to make a clean break from the past? Is there a situation that you need to walk away from here and now? I don't know. Your neighbor sitting you, next to you doesn't know. But God knows. And God is convicting you right here, right now. What about you? Are you ready to make that turn, that pivot, that 180 degree today. Let, let's look at Naomi. These two daughter-in-law, what do they want to do? They want to follow her. You usually follow someone that is a leader. You will follow someone that you respect. You will follow someone that you look up to. You will follow someone that you want to emulate and imitate. And we have these two daughter-in-laws who are willing to emigrate. And emigrating is a hard thing. Leaving your native country 
with its traditions and its customs and its language and to go to a foreign country is a hard thing. So the fact that these daughter-in-laws want to follow Naomi also speaks to her noble character. And Naomi keeps telling them, go back, go back, go back to your people, go back to your families, don't follow me. And by the way, had they actually taken her up on the offer, or if they had all taken her up on the offer, she would have had to make, as a woman, as a woman, she would have had to make that journey on those roads where there was no police, there was no rule of law, where she would have been easy prey for all of the thieves and all the other miscreants. She would have easily been vulnerable. And she keeps telling them, go away, don't follow me. I have no prospects. I have no protector for you. I have no provider. And in verse 8, with regards to her noble character, what does she do? Let me read it for you. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. And here's a blessing. There's a blessing. She blesses them. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. She blesses them. She blesses them. She left full and she's returning empty. It's a key theme in the book of Ruth. Beginning full, leaving empty. And we have an insight into the character of Naomi. She's generous. She's generous and she grants them, in verses 10 to 14, she grants them their freedom. She grants them their freedom. Do not feel obliged in any way, shape, or form in following me. As a matter of fact, she says, go away. Quite literally, go away. But one left and one stayed. It actually says at the end of verse 14 that Ruth clung to her. What does it mean to cling? I believe that she physically was hanging on. It's not only the fact that she refused to leave, she was physically hanging on. So much so that Naomi at a certain moment in time just gives up. Okay, you can come. Follow me. Even though she tells her, go back, turn back, turn back. In essence, when Naomi makes the case that they should not follow her, she's telling him, even if I could have sons, even if they were to grow up, 
there's no guarantee that I could even give them to you. There's no guarantee that someone will marry me, that I will bear sons, and that they in turn will marry you. In essence, she's saying it's hopeless. She's saying, I have nothing, I have nothing to offer, I am nothing. So notwithstanding that she's a person of noble character, we get a glimpse into her frame of mind. I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist, but if you were to ask me, she sounds as if she's depressed. Because she says in verse 13, For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now keep that in mind. Things are going so poorly for her that she is convinced that God has turned against her. Has God really turned against her? The answer is no. But the way things look right now, her prospects being what they are, she is convinced that God has turned against her. Hold on to that. Let's move on to verses 15 to 18. And you have one of the most beautiful pledges of loyalty that you will hear at wedding ceremonies, that you will hear when people want to express their loyalty. And it needs to be read in verse 16. But Ruth said... Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And this is the big one. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And then she calls a curse on herself. May the Lord do so to me, and more so, if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi, notwithstanding her state of mind, has been able during her whole life, and in her relationship with these two daughter-in-laws that she refers to as daughters, she has modeled God. She has been a wonderful witness as to who God is her daughter-in-laws. How do I know that? No one goes around saying, your God will be my God if they're not favorably impressed. She models God in her life and in her words. And my question to you is as follows. Question number three. What about you? Do you model Him do you make God attractive by your speech, by your actions, by your life? When people see you and know you and get to know you and spend time with you, do they come to the conclusion that I want your God to be my God? It's a challenge to every believer. We should be living out and modeling God every day. In verse 20, Naomi asks for a name change. Every so often in my practice, I see people who have two names, 
They'll submit one birth certificate with their old name, and then they get an official name change, and they have a new birth certificate. And when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, I can see all of the people sticking their heads out of the window, and they see Naomi, and right away, and immediately the gossip chain starts from Main Street from the from beginning to end, and people are saying, "Can this be Naomi? She doesn't look the same. She's come back without a husband, without children." without grandchildren. All she has in tow is some foreign woman next to her. This is all she's got. By the way, when they left Bethlehem, they were people who owned land. They owned land. They were people of standing. She's related to Boaz, who is, Scripture tells us, a person of high standing in the community. You know what they tell you? You can never come home. Certainly don't go home if you're left a success and come back a failure. So people are bowing out and saying, things really didn't work out for her. What did she do wrong? And Naomi, in her desolation, asks for a name change. Do you know what Naomi means? It means happy and pleasant. And she's anything but happy and pleasant. She asks for a name change. She wants to be known as Mara. Mara means bitter. She's not in a good place. In verse 21, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me happy and pleasant, Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Is Naomi a complainer? A whiner? Should she just, just suck it up and be happy? I don't believe she was wrong in letting and expressing her true feelings. I know we shouldn't grumble. It's not scriptural to grumble. But this was the cry from her soul. In her innermost being, she felt like she had been abandoned. That God has turned his face and his back to her and against her. She's starting to sound a lot like Job. She is the female Job of the Old Testament. <coughs> If we look to Jesus and amongst the last words that he uttered on the cross, he too felt abandoned. Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is a glimpse into her state of mind as she crosses the front gates and she sees all of these familiar faces and hears these familiar voices crying out to her. But Jesus also felt the same way. Can we fast forward now to the New Testament to see who Jesus was? Notably in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, 
and Colossians 2, verses 2, 9, and 10. And I'd like you to look at the words and to focus on the words fullness. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus in his physical manifestation, in his physical expression, was the essence of God. Listen carefully, because this is huge. The Lord Jesus reflected the person and the essence and the very nature of God. And why is this important? Because the book of Ruth is about the notion of kinsman-redeemer. In Mosaic law, it was possible that when you were sold into slavery or when you lost your land, that a family member, a kinsman, could buy you back, could free you, could redeem you. And the Lord Jesus Christ becomes, when He takes on the form of mankind, we will see He becomes our kinsman. Before he can become a redeemer, he becomes our kinsman. Let's look at Philippians. And the key word here in yellow is but emptied himself. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but just the first sentence. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. When Jesus came and lived, He gave it His all. He poured out everything. Jesus, the expression of God, God Himself, was poured out. He emptied everything. He left nothing on the table. Nothing. Let's continue. And as a result, let's look at Galatians. And this is where we link up with the notion that God's relationship with us through Jesus transcends biology, ethnicity, and nationality. For Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All barriers are broken down. There's no distinction. So when Ruth is coming back home, even though she's a Gentile and a pagan, she is accepted. And for you today, as I see a variety of faces representing the nations of the world, there is no distinction. Regardless of whether, where you hail from, regardless of the language that you speak, regardless of your culture, your ethnicity, because Jesus lived 
and died and rose on the third day for all those who embrace him, for all of those who accept him. He accepts us into his family, into the family of God. We become heirs, and it transcends and goes beyond biology, ethnicity, and nationality. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Right time, perfect time, the fullness of time, Jesus is our spiritual kinsman, redeemer. The book of Ruth has a happy ending. If we fast forward to the fourth chapter, and it's the portion of chapter 2 and 3 is the, probably the portion that most people are familiar with. But Boaz, who is the physical kinsman redeemer, marries Ruth. And with Ruth, he bears a son. Listen how the gossip turns into praise in verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Look at the ending. Full, empty, Desperate, desolate, to filled up again. And the picture of her having this baby on her lap is a picture of adoption. And everyone around her saying, you have a son. And the daughter-in-law, who was a pagan and a Gentile, exceeds seven sons. Look at what God is doing. He's taken this terrible situation and he sets into motion a series of events that leads eventually to the birth of David. The book of Ruth ends with the proper noun, David. And we know who David is the ancestor of. David is the ancestor of Jesus. God uses terrible situations. He uses abject failure to convert it to spectacular success. And I'm going to leave and end on this because it is Mother's Day. What can God do 
in hopelessness. What he did for Naomi, he can do for you. And the question is, will you let him? Will you let him? God is a great God. God is a God of success. God is a God who can take desperate situations and turn them on our, their head and make good come out of bad. And God wants to do the same thing for each and every one of you because God loves you. God loves you that He gave His only Son so that you could come into His family and become co-heirs and He has become, as a result, Jesus is our spiritual kinsman redeemer. Happy Mother's Day, Naomi. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. And regardless of what your situation and circumstances is, don't give up. And even though Naomi felt as if she had been abandoned, God makes a promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a promise. Promises can't be broken. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are spectacular in every way. Thank you that you cannot be undermined, circumvented, that you cannot be defeated. Thank you that you are the God of hope, that you are the God that takes bitterness and turns it into happiness. Thank you that you are the God who makes things pleasant and who allows the boundaries to fall in pleasant places. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your son. Bless all of those that you've entrusted to nourish and to cherish and who exercise motherhood in every way, shape, or form, biologically or otherwise. Encourage them. Bless them. May they experience you this morning. We pray 